Welcome back to our Busting Addiction and Its Myths podcast. I'm Bruno J, and I have updated the introduction to our episodes in order to address an issue that we cannot ignore, nor do we want to. It looks like COVID-19, the coronavirus, will be with us for some time, some say for another year or two. People are as frightened as they ever have been. They seek safety for their families above all, protection from the virus and from economic insecurity. But many families also face an added burden, drug addiction and alcoholism in their own homes, and what to do about it. There's something you should know. We, Safe House Rehab Thailand, were founded on the idea of safety. We hold on to the truth that clients deserve to come to a treatment clinic where they can at least feel safe and sound. Devoting ourselves to safety first gives us the firm foundation upon which everything else is constructed. Hence our name, Safe House Rehab Thailand. Thailand has been recognized as one of the world's safest places to be during the pandemic. Further, we at Safehouse have made the right adjustments so that clients and staff remain and feel safe and sound. Masks are mandatory as is social distancing, mandatory hand cleaning, daily blood oximeter readings, which is an early warning measure, and if by chance someone, anyone doesn't feel well, the local hospital in Bangbong is only minutes away. My podcast, Busting Addiction and Its Myths, is dedicated to serving families of still-suffering addicts and alcoholics by providing evidence-based advice and insight so that you can make a better informed decision on what to do and what not to do. We are sponsored by Safehouse Rehab Thailand, dedicated to a modern approach to recovery, which means that we absolutely outperform traditional rehabs when it comes to diagnostics, technology, and aftercare. To learn how we can help, just visit safehouserehab.com where we post the latest news. This is Bruno J. again, and welcome to episode 11 of season 5 of my podcast, Busting Addiction and Its Myths. This episode is dedicated to my love affair with marijuana. Now, why would anyone do that? Dedicate a whole story to a love affair with a drug. Well, my purpose in this podcast is to bring you the truth about addiction, including alcoholism, and occasionally bust a myth or two. That is to peel the lid off the surface of addiction to see what's underneath. What my counselor saw just before she helped me sober up for good in 1993, and I hope that's for good, but there are no guarantees if I don't stay on, the, on top of my recovery game, was a 46-year-old professional man who looked and was strung out, nervous, skinny, smoking incessantly, unemployed, I had been fired from a six-figure job, and telling her the story of my addiction to alcohol and dope, also known as Mary Jane, ganja, weed, marijuana, or pot. The point here is that most people have little clue as to how long some addicts have been addicted and how deeply a particular drug has embedded itself into the very fabric of one's life. The truth is that for the vast majority of users of an easily available, relatively cheap and quasi-illegal drug like marijuana, smoking it came early, usually in their mid-teens, like 16, as, as it was in my case. And also drinking, so together with dope, you had the perfect little party of passing the joint and drinking the beer. At that point, for most users, it's a take-it-or-leave-it deal, except for the compulsive tug of the peer group, of course. For some other users, however, like me, it's the beginning of their lifelong love affair with the drug marijuana. You don't know at that point who's going, to, who's going where with this thing. I sure had no idea where it would take me. 
But it and other drugs and alcohol took me all the way to the bottom, or more accurately, it was my flagrant abuse of substances that had me slide down a slippery slope into a living hell which I escaped by sheer desperation. My love affair story with Mary Jane, marijuana, starts when I was about 18 when I tried a token my sophomore year. I was one of those who was only 17 when I started college out east, an unsupervised juvenile. I was serious about school, however, and I did graduate with decent grades and got a master's degree in Chicago in short order. I saved seeds for my dope and planted them in a quart basket over spring break in the greenhouse where we were getting the tobacco crop started. My family owned a tobacco farm in Ontario, Canada. Yep, they grow tobacco in Ontario to this day. You can check it out. So I was an old hand at growing many different types of plants given we grew cover crops as well. So I said to my mom, Mother, could you or John give this botany project some water as you water the tobacco, then keep doing it even after the tobacco is replanted? Oh, but of course, my boy, she says. Well, she's the best mom in the world taking care of my dope. When I came home for summer vacation in late May, the dope was getting tall. My mom said, Sonny boy, that botany project sure looks like canape. That's the Lithuanian word for cannabis or hemp. I told her not to worry. It'll be out of there shortly. My younger brother John and I replanted about a dozen or so of said plants in a clearing at the edge of a tobacco field with lots of sun and good drainage. That sandy loam soil is the world's best for certain kinds of crops. The dope grew to a height of 10 feet by Labor Day. The buds were the size of a fist. We pulled down all the plants without stripping the buds, then dried the entire plant in a tobacco kiln without letting our dad know what the heck we were doing. We then stripped the buds, shaved them a bit, then bagged the dope and ended up selling and giving away about 10 pounds of marijuana in town, uh, which is only a couple miles away. My brother and I earned the distinction of becoming the original dope men in our area. That was quite the distinction, but it was too much work. My next move at the age of 19 or so was just to deal it, not just grow it and deal it. My supplier contact was my fiance's girlfriend, whose boyfriend bought and sold dope in, a, in not too serious a way, kind of a hobby. So I said to him, Dave, can you get me a kilo for starters? I want to see how it goes in Toronto. Dave, however, lived in Delton, Detroit. So I would have to slip over the Canada-U.S. border with a kilo of Mary Jane in my Pontiac. Sure enough, I buy a kilo. It's compressed into approximately a 2x6x10-inch block, which I place in a toiletry kit and slide under the driver's seat, and that's, that's all. Now, you have to understand the distances involved. The family farm is 190 miles from Detroit, which is a two-and-a-half-hour drive if you average 90 miles an hour, which they let you do back then. And then Toronto is another 250 miles from Detroit. Well, the farm is about 90 miles south of Toronto, so I drive across the border at Sarnia, Sarnia Ontario, just north of Detroit. No sweat with the dope under my seat. Imagine getting caught with a dealer's quantity of dope, and then, then another 340 miles to Toronto to sell the dope, then home, all told. For my troubles and risk, I made $400. Buy for 400 sell for 800 And lots of sampling along the way, of course, got to make sure it's any good. I made it home about 9 a.m. after driving all night. My dad was waiting for me, steaming, because I should have been on the tractor two hours ago. Well, this is just one example of how I integrated marijuana into my life as if it were no big deal. Well, more follows. Examples. My brother and I got a hold of some hashish, and we would drive around farm country high as kites at night, marveling at the effect, drinking beer, impressing our friends <laughs> with our generosity. Pot had not yet become a daily ritual as it did much later for me. 
When I moved to New York in the early 80s, I found a very convenient means of getting the pot I wanted, when I wanted it. I asked one of my ad agency friends at the time, David, where can I get some really good stuff really easy? He turned me on to a pot delivery service called Weedy, as in We Deliver. You call a number, tell them who sent you, as in David H., and then ask what's on the menu. They'll say, oh, we have Maui Waui, California Sins, Colombian Dynamite, Thai Sticks, and so on. Then the price, say, is 50 bucks an ounce, and don't forget to tip the delivery guy. He's one of those bicycle guys you see all over town. He comes only to your place of business. So the receptionist at my office at 29th and Park Avenue tells me there's a delivery for me. The guy brings his bike into the elevator, which isn't uncommon, comes into my office. I close the door. He opens his big leather bag, and it's holding the biggest stash of dope I've ever seen. Now, my bag is coated. I hand him over. I hand him seventy dollars to cover the the, the ounce of, of pot and his tip. So that's one of several New York stories. I think the weirdest one was when I went looking to bring a whole bunch of pot to a reunion where I was the designated dope man. I went into Bryant Park behind the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue. The park was then a bad place in the eighties with dope dealers and shooters all over. The dealers would creep along the sidewalk, sort of loud whispering, "Smoke, smoke." and he would then go somewhere else to make the exchange. I connected to a smoke guy. He went to a car, and then we both walked into a peep show in Times Square nearby. We went into the peep booth, paid 10 bucks to have a woman show us her equipment, as I paid the man 150 bucks and walked out. But the guy and I walk out together. Here I was, a man in a suit on a workday with a Rastafarian shaking my hand. Imagine if a colleague saw that. Silly wrists one takes. But the New York cops care less about small stuff like that. One of the most embarrassing events, and one that showed how dependent on marijuana I was getting, happened on a flight. I decided for God knows what reason that I would toke in the bathroom on the flight. I lit up a joint, then blew the smoke into, into the toilet as it vacuum flushed the smoke out. When I got back to my seat, the fellow next to me said, I can smell what you just did, and, and I should have you arrested and thrown off the plane. You are a dumb son of a bitch. I sat there for an hour in mortified silence, but lucky for me, the guy just said as we were leaving, you were lucky this time, you're not worth my trouble. So he didn't think very highly of me, obviously. So now I will fast forward to close out the story of my ill-fated love affair with marijuana. Keep in mind, I was also consuming vast amounts of alcohol near the end, and I was also using opiates at night because it kept my bed from spinning so I could sleep. So now what I've just told you covers about 20 years worth of smoking dope. Toward the end, after I got fired from a great job because I had become catatonic, that is, frozen to the point of uselessness and paranoia, marijuana did not work for me at all. I couldn't get high. I could not escape reality, the reality of my feelings. I could not keep the terror of insanity at bay. All I got was the sensation of having a nail driven into my skull. Even after I stopped drinking for my first try at sobriety in 1992, I thought it was okay to smoke pot. Good luck with that idea. I longed for a beer because, you see, my throat got so dry. And I was crazier than ever. It wasn't until I completely surrendered a year later to the fact that I was completely and utterly powerless over alcohol and drugs and sought help out of desperation that it became crystal clear that I had to be 100% abstinent and not allow any mind-altering substance into my system. And that realization marked the beginning of a life of freedom from Mrs. Marijuana, it started in July of 1993. A happy divorce, to be sure. What did we learn from my love affair with the marijuana story? 
One, it wasn't until I put on a new pair of glasses and looked back at my life to see how I had embedded a drug into my life as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Two, even after extreme embarrassment, I continued to not acknowledge, I continued to deny that I was profoundly addicted to pot in addition to alcohol and other drugs, and yet I continued to seek it out. Three, it starts early for most users. And because marijuana is cheap, easily available, and socially acceptable, it becomes readily integrated into daily life, particularly for young people. Four, this is a place for me to tell you that today's pot is six to ten times more potent in its THC content than in the past. Addiction comes faster and becomes more debilitating than ever before. Five, when I admitted I was utterly powerless over marijuana and alcohol and sought help, I understood that I could not use any mind-altering substances to have a life free from the insanity I so feared. Thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com. SafeHouse Rehab represents the modern approach to recovery founded on safety as our first priority. We absolutely outperform traditional rehabs with a sophisticated intake protocol application of new techniques, and a more robust aftercare program.